right, Sue. Appreciate that. That was a good introduction, right? So, good morning, good morning. It's great to see everybody. I want to welcome you this morning to Gateway Baptist Church. Special greeting to those if you're visiting with us for the, for the first time or a couple. We are so glad you're here to worship with us today. For those watching at home, so glad you're watching and get to worship with us as well. Just a couple announcements. Actually, four, not a couple, that's two. So uh, as you can tell by my festive and colorful shirt, VBS is continuing today. Very excited. So uh, it's not too late if there's any youngins in here and they want to participate. Um, you can go down this hall to the preschool check-in and make your way to the gym, and your kids can continue on with our VBS program today. It starts at 9 a.m. We're doing a little different this year. Next year we'll go back to the normal schedule, but we're doing it over the next few Sundays and so from 9 a.m. through our Sunday school time and then through our church service, we're having a three-hour slot over in the gym for VBS for kids from preschool to fifth grade. So we'd love for your children to participate. And like I said, you can take them over now. Also, we're having uh, communion today. Time to enjoy that together and partake of communion. Uh, the elements are in front of you, the seats in front of you. And for those at home, we ask that you uh, prepare the elements um, as we get ready at the end of the service to partake of that. If you need a gluten-free wafer, we have some of those elements here and some in the back as well. For members, Gateway members, an announcement for next week. This is very important. We're going to have a special business meeting following next Sunday's service at the conclusion uh, to approve two unanimous recommendations from the elders. Number one, to approve a new job description for the position of music minister. And number two, to call Mr. Justin Taylor to serve in that role as our music minister. Um, you've received an email and you've also received a letter with that information. And if you have not, please let us know so we can get that to you. If you have any questions, you can talk to me, uh, Grady, or any of the elders um, regarding any of that. But that's next Sunday after church. And we're just real excited about what God is doing and how he's leading us and leading Justin. Uh, on a little sad note, it's a little bittersweet. This is the last Sunday for Mark and Gabby Wilkie. Where's Mark? I know I saw him walk in. There he is. <laughs> hey, brother. I saw you in the back, and they're like, boom. So we're going to miss you. We love you. Mark has been serving faithfully as one of our elders. Gabby has been serving faithfully, discipling women, and just so involved in our church. And we're, we exci we're excited for them and celebrating that they get to go to the Panhandle of Florida to be with their children and grandchildren, but they've been such a vital part of our body, and we're going to miss you guys. We love you so much, but are excited about your future. So we can remember at the end of the service if you and Gabby will come forward at the last song, and uh, many will come and we'll pray over you and lay hands on you. So love you, brother. If we can all please stand. Let me uh, <clears throat> read us some scripture to prepare our hearts to worship the Lord this morning going to be reading from Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's worship him together this morning.
Go back to that bridge and just sing that bridge one last time and think about these lyrics to break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything that we are is for the cause of the kingdom. Let's sing that bridge. And heal my heart and make it clean. And open up my eyes to the things unseen. Show me how to love like you. Love me and break my heart for what breaks yours, and everything I am for your kingdom's cause. As I walk from earth into eternity. It's 
please. Lord God Almighty, what a great truth. The more we seek you, the more we find you, the more we find you, the more we love you. You are there. You are faithful, even when we are not. You are always faithful. Father, I want to lift up this church. I want to lift up Gateway. Father, I thank you so much for bringing Gabby and I here for such a time as this when we needed healing, restoration. We needed your sense of community in your church. And you gave it to us here at Gateway. It is your blessing, your honor, and your glory for that. Father, I pray. I pray for the elders in this body. I thank you so much for them. Lord, you have blessed this church with men who love you, who you have called to shepherd this flock, who have ministered to me even when they didn't know it. Lord, use them to shepherd this flock for your glory, for your fame, for the gospel's sake in this community. Father, I pray for the marriages in this church. Lord, the enemy would seek to destroy marriages. Lord, it is an institution that you created to represent Christ in the church. From the foundation, from the beginning, you created man for woman, and the enemy seeks to divide and to destroy. Lord, I pray by the power of your spirit that you would hold the marriages together here. Lord, that you would lead men to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And, Lord, that you would lead wives to respect and submit to their husbands as unto you for your sake, for the good of the gospel. And, Lord, for those marriages that are struggling, Lord, you can heal. You can restore. There is nothing too broken for you to fix. So, Lord, do a great work in those marriages. Father, we pray for the MBA ministry in Lowndes County and Haneyville Baptist Church, providing those in need with food and the gospel. Lord, you call us to minister to the poor, to the homeless, and that's what these folks are doing, so bless them. And I pray that as needs are met, the gospel would be shared and spiritual food would be given. Lord, we pray for new life in Christ church here, the Hispanic church that meets here. As they are seeking a new pastor, Lord, bring them the shepherd that you have already appointed. Reveal that person to them so that ministry will continue. Lord, bless that ministry. Multiply it to your praise and glory. Father, we, during this time in this country, we pray for our president. We pray for our Congress. We pray for our governor. We pray for leaders across this country. Lord, restore moral leadership. Father, you bless those who bless you. Father, we, we recognize that no country on this earth is significant compared to the citizenship we have in heaven. But Lord, we do pray that you would turn the tide in this country and use us to spread your gospel. Continue to use us to spread your gospel around the globe. And so we need leaders, moral leaders, who will help defend marriages, who will help defend right 
We pray for President Biden that you would turn his heart toward you. Vice President Harris, you turn her heart toward you. All the leaders, nothing changes without you. Lord, you can, you save me. I know you can save anybody. Father, we pray for global missions. And Lord, the two Syrian sisters who came to saving faith and their relatives who are Sunni Muslims, and they're pressuring them daily regarding their faith. And it's dangerous for them. We pray for their strength, for the boldness to be a witness of the gospel and that they would grow deeper in their relationship with you as they study your word. Father, we pray for the offering. We pray for that we would not hold on to the things you've given us so tightly, but we would freely give them to you and that you would multiply them and do great things. Pray for Grady as he comes and shares this morning and that you would minister to our hearts and that we would hear hear your word and be more than hearers but also doers of it. And Father, I thank you so much again for bringing us to this church. And so Father, I want to pray as Paul prayed in Colossians. Gabby and I always thank God and thank you, Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for this church gateway. We have not only heard of the faith of gateway, we have experienced it in Christ Jesus and the love that they have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. Father, from the day we heard and experienced gateway, We have not ceased to pray for them, and we will continue to pray for this church, asking that they will be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of you. Lord, will you strengthen this church with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. We give thanks to you, Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You have delivered us from the domain of darkness, and you have delivered Gateway from the domain of darkness, and transferred Gateway into the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this is all based on these next verses, Father. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body. He is the head of gateway. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of you is pleased to dwell. And through Christ to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so, Father, I pray for Gateway that they would rest in that truth in Christ as their Savior. And that you would do, do a mighty work for this body in Christ's name. Amen.
Well, thank you, Mark, for that prayer over us. We are thrilled for you guys to get to be close to family and close to grandkids. And we're just so grateful, Mark and Gabby, for your ministry here, for your friendship, for your encouragement. You guys have ministered to us and encouraged us in ways you don't even know. And we are so thankful for you guys. And we're looking forward to what the Lord does in and through you as you head to the panhandle of Florida. We'll be coming to see you guys down there. So, okay, we family, good to see you this morning. Find Romans chapter 5 in your copy of God's Word. Romans chapter 5. We are continuing our study of being rooted, trying to be grounded in the unchanging Word of God to see what we believe and why. Now, for the last three months of our rooted study, we've been focusing on a topic that's not one we're normally drawn to. That's the topic of the law, the commands of God. And what we've seen over and over over these last three months, whether it's looking at the Ten Commandments or looking at the bigger picture of the law, is that God's standard for us is perfect and perpetual obedience. That God requires us to obey His law perfectly in all things, in thoughts and motivations and what we do, but also to do it perpetually ongoing. And that led to our question that we looked at from our catechism last week, and the question was, can any of us keep God's law perfectly? Now you remember the answer to this was easy. Can any of us keep God's law perfectly? No, we, we can't, can we? It's not just we can't do it, but we consistently break it in our thoughts. We consistently break it in our words. We consistently break God's law in our actions as well. As we continue through the New City Catechism that's guiding our study here, we come to the next question, which is really a natural follow-up. And the question this morning is simply this. Did God make people unable to keep the law? Did God make people unable to keep the law? If we are unable to keep the law of God perfectly, did God make us that way? Is it impossible for us to do that because of the way God designed us? Now, this question gets very philosophical very quickly, but that's not the way we want to go with it. I want us to go to Scripture this morning to understand, did God make us unable to keep the law? But I want this question to drive us not just to Scripture for the answer, because this is a hard question. But I want this question to drive us to look in our own hearts to see how we evaluate ourselves. So in light of that, we will look this morning at Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, and to see, did God make people unable to keep the law? Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, and I will be reading out of the English Standard Version. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Verse 19, for it's by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are so thankful for your word. God, we are so thankful that we as a body of believers get to study it together, to be rooted in it and grounded in it. Lord, today we come to a hard text and we come to a hard question. We come to a text that really pushes us beyond the way we normally think and pushes us to, to think in ways different than our culture thinks. And we ask for much grace as we study it. Lord, this wouldn't just be some intellectual pursuit this morning. But Lord, as we understand these verses in this text, that God, you would use it this morning to help us properly look at ourselves, to see how you see us, to see where our only hope can be found. So take this text and use it this morning to grow us as your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So again, our question this morning is, did God make people unable to keep his law? Now, to answer that question this morning, we actually want us to ask three smaller questions to then build our answers. So instead of giving you the answer at the front like I normally do here, I want to ask three smaller questions and then put that together to come up with our answer for this morning from God's Word. So to answer our question this morning, let's start with this first question. Let's go back to creation. Did God create Adam and Eve unable to keep the law? So let's go all the way back, not to us, but let's go back to Genesis. Did God create Adam and Eve unable to keep the law? Now, if you think back some weeks ago, before we even got into the section on the law and the commands, in week eight of our study, we said God created all things by His powerful Word. 
and all his creation was very, do you remember what came next? It was very what? It was very good. That everything God made when he made the world, it was very good. That means God did not make anything that was bad, anything that was broken. He made everything perfect. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very what? It was very good. And there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. When God made everything, including people, he made it perfect. He made it good. This includes the people he made, the very first two literal human beings, Adam and Eve. They were made perfect in the image of God, in perfect relationship with Him, able to obey God, able to keep His law. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. If you think back to Genesis, which is a Hebrew word that means beginnings. As we look back to this book of beginnings, God gave just one prohibition to, these, to the first two people. And that's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. If you look at the one command he gave them, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. In verse 17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. They had this one rule, this one command, and they could have obeyed it. Everything was perfect. They did not have a sin nature like you and I had. And so the first part of our answer this morning, did God create Adam and Eve unable to keep the law? The answer is no. He made them perfect. He was a world with no brokenness, no sin. They were able to keep the law. But then last week we looked and said, that, but you and I aren't able to. You and I are no longer able to keep the law. We consistently break it. So that leads to our second question, what changed? What changed? If God made the world perfect and Adam and Eve had the opportunity to obey the law and they could have, what changed for us and why we're not able to? If you go back in Romans chapter 5 up to verse 12, verse 12 introduces a section. Our verses we read this morning, 18 and 19, are the summary of what Paul starts in Romans 5 and verse 12. Look in verse 12. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. Now just pause there. What changed? There's that phrase that Paul uses right there. Sin came into the world. The God's perfect world that he made was broken by sin. Now the word we use to describe that, we call that the fall. The fall is when sin entered the world. Temptation came and people chose to disobey God. Now, what did they do? Again, back to Genesis chapter 3. It tells us what happened when the fall happened. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent. Now, let me pause there. It's a whole sermon for another day here. The serpent is Satan. Satan was his name was Lucifer. He was an angel who was the highest of the angels. He was there to worship God, but he became jealous because he wanted to be worshipped. He didn't want to serve God. He led a rebellion of other angels to try to get the glory for himself and the power for himself. That's obviously futile because God is all-powerful. So he was cast out of heaven. The angels who followed him were also cast out of heaven into hell as well. They're called demons today. But he still seeks to oppose God. Again, that's a whole sermon for another day somewhere down the road. But for right now, what we need to remember is Satan continues to work today to oppose God. He continues to work today to try to create brokenness in God's world. And he does that primarily by getting people to doubt God and then getting people to sin. And those go hand in hand. He tries to get people to doubt God, and he tries to get people to sin. And he does that here in Genesis chapter 3. You see that, and it's the very first temptation to come onto the planet. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 2. Now notice what happens here. The, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Verse 3. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither should touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, Notice how he's getting them to doubt God here. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So you have this very first temptation, doubting God, 
tempting to sin, and Adam and Eve listened to the voice of the enemy, and sin came into the world. Adam and Eve made an intentional choice to disobey the God they were walking with in the garden. And when sin came, the consequences of sin came as well. We call this the curse. And what follows in Genesis 3 is the curse. It's God's punishment over sin. And in particular, one part of the the curse is death enters the world. Up until this point, there was no death. No animal died. No insect died. There was no death of any type prior to the fall. But with death, with sin coming in, death now comes. Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, you see this effect on humanity. Part of the curse here to Adam. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. That's an imagery of dying. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. That up until this point there had been no death. But because sin came into the world through the choice of Adam and Eve, death now comes. And what the story is since then is a continued story of brokenness and death. If you go to Genesis chapter 5, you see this. You start dealing with some of the genealogies in Genesis 5. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. I think we have that one up there. There you go. Thus all the days... If Brad can go back, do we have verse 3 up there also? There you go. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. Now, think of the ages here. This is little history. And in the days of Adam after, there you go, after his likeness, and he named him Seth. Now, verse 4. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Now, verse 5, though. The promise of God of death coming from sin happens. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and then he what? Then he died. Now, if you go to verse 8, it talked about his son Seth. And what happens to his son Seth? That's all there is. Seth were 912 years, and then he what? He died. If you go through the rest of Genesis 5, every paragraph ends with, and he died, and he died, and he died. And you just start going down the list because sin has come into the world. Brokenness has come, and death has now entered God's creation. Over and over you see that story has been repeated ever since Adam and Eve. Thus, Paul concludes, go back to Romans 5, verse 12, the beginning of the section we're in this morning. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So Adam and Eve were created perfect, but things changed when they chose to sin. Brokenness came and death came. So they sinned, but what about us? How does that affect us? And that's our third question for the morning. Why are we now unable to keep the law? Now you go back and look at Adam and Eve sin going, okay, that's great. Thousands and thousands of years ago, the first people sinned. How does that affect me Today, in the year that we're in right now, why are we now unable to keep the law? And that's what Romans 5, verses 18 and 19 are all about. Now, friends, what we're reading here today is, if we're honest, is really hard to hear. What we're reading here, a lot of people do not like. This goes against a lot of our American sense of fairness and all these things, but we need to let Scripture guide our conscience, not what feels right to us. There are two reasons why we are unable to keep the law that we see in Scripture, and both these things are connected. But there's two things that we get. When we are born, we have two things that make us unable to keep law. Number one, we have inherited guilt. We have inherited guilt. And second of all, we have inherited sinfulness. That when we are born from our birth, we are born with an inherited guilt, and we are born with an inherited sinfulness. Now I want us to take those apart and look at both those two concepts. We see those in God's Word. Again, this is so counter to the way that we want to think or the way our culture thinks or that we're so tempted to think on this. We start with the idea that we're unable to keep the law now because we've received an inherited guilt. Now, what does this mean? Inherited guilt means that everyone since Adam and Eve is considered by God to be guilty because of Adam's sin. Inherited guilt means that everyone who has been born ever since Adam and Eve is considered by God to already be guilty because of what Adam and Eve did, because of Adam's sin. Again, this concept is hard in our culture. That is saying that we are guilty of breaking the law because of what someone before us has done. That you and I are born 
already guilty before God, before we can even do anything right or wrong, we are already born with an inherited guilt because of what Adam chose to do thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. Look at verse 18. I want you to see this from God's word here. If you go back to verse 18 of Romans chapter 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Now, let's just stop there and unpack that phrase. It says there's one trespass. Now, this word trespass is another word for sin. It means intentional disobedience. So what is the one trespass of what we just read in Genesis 3? When Adam and Eve listened to the voice of Satan, and they chose to eat of that fruit of the tree, there was a trespass, there was a sin. And because of the one trespass, because of what Adam and Eve chose to do, they are somewhere post-creation. It says something here that that one trespass led to something. Now, don't miss and don't pass over that word led to. The word led to means it caused something else to happen. But Adam and Eve's disobedience, their trespass, led to, it caused something else to happen. And what is it that caused to happen? The next word, it led to condemnation. Now, condemnation is a guilty verdict. When a judge looks at someone and says, you've sinned, you are guilty, the penalty is coming. So Adam and Eve's one sin led to, it caused condemnation to come. Now, if we just stopped right there, we'd be like, okay, that makes sense. Adam and Eve got judged for their sin. But don't miss the very next phrase. It led to condemnation for how many? All men. And here, men is used in the neutral sense to me. Men and women, all people on the planet. That what God's Word tells us is that the punishment for Adam's sin, the guilt for Adam's sin, is given to all of humanity that is to follow. In other words, in God's eyes, every human who has ever lived since Adam, including you and me, inherits Adam's guilty standing before God simply because we are people. Simply because we are descendants of Adam and Eve, we now inherit the guilt of their first sin. Now, I know that's hard for us, so there's a technical term we need to understand in this. And here's the big word that's really important for us to understand. It's the word impute. I-M-P-U-T-E, to impute. To impute is when something is credited to you that you did not do. To impute is when something is given to you, is credited to you, is attributed to you, even if you did not do it. Here, Adam's guilt is imputed to us. No, we were not in the Garden of Eden. No, you and I were not there looking at the fruit and talking to a snake. And going, okay, that looks good. I'm going to try some of this, though God said no. We didn't make that choice. Adam and Eve did, but as Adam and Eve's descendants, that guilt has been imputed to you and to me. And again, it's a tough idea. I want you to hear how Wayne Grudem explains it. Wayne Grudem is the author of Systematic Theology, one of the books we have out in the Resource Center out there. Here's how Wayne Grudem explains it. He says, All members of the human race were represented by Adam in the time of testing in the Garden of Eden. As our representative, Adam sinned. And God counted us guilty as well as Adam. God counted Adam's guilt as belonging to us. Notice this. And since God is the ultimate judge of all things in the universe, and since God's thoughts are always true, Adam's guilt does, in fact, belong to us. As hard as it is for us in our culture to understand this, how we can be counted guilty because of something Adam and Eve did, if God is the one who is holy and just, and God always does what's right, if God says through one man's sin all of us are guilty, then what is very true and is very right, though it may be hard for us to process. Paul knows this is a hard truth, so he repeats the idea with some different words in verse 19. So look down in verse 19 and notice the first phrase. Notice the similarity but the change in terminology. He says, For it's by one man's disobedience that many were made sinners. And we'll stop there and we'll come back to the rest in a minute. He says, By one man, again, this is Adam, by one man's disobedience. Again, it's another way to say his trespass, his choice to sin. He says here, Now many meaning all who follow after Adam. Notice he says that many were made sinners. Don't pass over that phrase, many were made sinners. Here, sinners is meaning God's declaration of what we are, how God sees us. God sees us as guilty sinners. But don't miss the word were made. In the Greek language, which is written, the word, this phrase were made was passive. That means it's something done to you that you cannot do yourself. It's something that has to be done 
to you, that we were made sinners, that we were declared sinners through nothing of our own. That means before any of us were born, when Adam sinned and was declared guilty, all of us were declared guilty as well. Again, and it was hard for us. Listen to how the ESV Study Bible describes it. It says, when Adam is mankind's representative sinned, God regarded the whole human race as guilty sinners, thereby imputing Adam's guilt to everyone. In other words, God regarded Adam's guilt as belonging to the whole human race, while also declaring that Adam's guilt does in fact belong to us. So in other words, we are born with an inherent guilt. We are born guilty. We all start off that way. If that was not bad enough, friends, it gets worse. Because we have a second thing we're born with that makes us unable to keep the law. We have an inherited sinfulness. We have an inherited corruption. As we are born with a corrupt nature, we are born with a sin nature. We are born from birth longing to sin. We are born, as we saw last week in the phrase, under sin. We are born enslaved to our sin. That means we cannot help but sin. It's our very nature. We saw this last week, Psalm 51, verse 5. David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, that doesn't mean that he was born, like Sosri, from a sinful relationship. That just simply means that as far as he can go back to when he was still in his mother's womb, he had a sin nature. His sin nature didn't come about after he made his first choice as a baby to cry mine or cry because he didn't get his way. His sin nature goes back to before he was born. When he was conceived, he already had not only inherited guilt, he had an inherited sin nature. That's why the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament is saying in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That we have an inherent sin nature. from the, Before we're even born, we have a deceitful heart. We have a desperately sick heart that wants to do what is wrong. That's why the Apostle Paul, who wrote so much of our New Testament, including Romans, says this in Romans chapter 7, verse 18. Notice he says about himself, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. That we all have an inherited sinfulness, an inherited corruption. That means, friends, we are born incapable of doing any good to get to God. I mean, that we are born incapable of doing any amount of good to get ourselves to God. We are born rejecting the law of God. Hence, Paul can say, if you go back to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we saw a minute ago, therefore, just as sin came in the world through one man, death through sin, so death spread to all men, all people, because all have sinned. You and I have sinned because we are born with a sin nature, an inherited sinfulness. Hence, Paul can also conclude in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're not only born being declared guilty by God because of Adam's sin, we're also born with a propensity, with an with enslavement to sin because we have an inherited corruption in our own being. Now let's pull those three questions together to answer our question this morning. So we said, did God create Adam and Eve unable to keep the law? No. He made them perfect. What went wrong? Adam and Eve chose to sin. They did not have to, but they did. And so the penalty of, of sin came with it. And ever since then, no one except for Jesus has been born, un- has been born able to keep the law. Why? Because we have inherited guilt. And we have inherited sinfulness. So now, here's our big answer to the question this morning before we look at why we need to hear this. Did God create us unable to keep the law? The answer is no. But because of the sin of Adam and Eve, we all are born sinful and guilty, unable to keep God's law. So did God make people unable to keep the law? No, he did not. But because of the sin of Adam and Eve, that first disobedience, that first trespass, as Romans describes, everyone since, including you and me today, we've all been born sinful, inherited sinfulness, inherited corruption, We've all been born guilty, inherited guilt before God. We are now unable to keep the law of God. Everything changed once sin came in the world. Therefore, as we saw last week, none of us are able to keep the law. And friends, this is a hard truth for us. 
the idea of inherited guilt and inherited sinfulness just kind of rubs us wrong. We don't like that. We don't like being told, you're guilty because of what Adam did. No, I mean, told, you can't help but sin. You're a slave to sin. Those are things that make us feel good. But friends, there are truths that we so desperately need to hear, even as believers. Why? Because we tend to think of ourselves as better than we really are. We tend to see ourselves as basically good. We tend to see, well, if I sin, it's because of some problem out there. If I sin, if I did wrong, it's because of my upbringing. It's because of my environment. It's because of what that person did to me. We tend to blame everyone else instead of looking inward for our own sin. And so Paul has these really hard words here to make sure we understand our depravity, our sinfulness, our utter helpless state apart from the mercy of grace of God. Because, friends, if we... If we do not embrace this truth, we are going to tend to evaluate ourselves like the rich man who came to Jesus. Think back to Mark chapter 10, verse 17. In Mark 10, 17, Jesus was setting out on a journey. And a man went up to him and knelt before him and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He wants to go to heaven. And Jesus answers him, Why do you call me good? And notice this, No one is good. But God alone. So the man's thinking, what can I do? How much good work can I do? I'm a pretty, thinking I'm a pretty good person, so how am I going to get to God? Because I'm, I'm almost there. I've done so much morality, so much goodness. I just need God to kind of bump me over the edge to get to heaven. And Jesus corrects him right off the bat. Only God is good. Now, verse 19, Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, before we go on, we've looked at the commandments in recent weeks. Remember the standard perfect and perpetual obedience? Not just in our actions, but in our thoughts and our motivations as well. And here's how he answers Jesus in verse 20. Teacher, all these have I kept from my youth. I mean, the audacity. He's standing before God incarnate right before him. The one who's never said, he's like, I, I'm basically sinless. Can I now get into heaven, please? He is basing his acceptance before God, thinking he is a good person, friends. But before we throw stones at him, our hearts want to think the same thing. Our hearts want to think that we're basically good people and that God just needs to give us a little bump to get into heaven because we're mostly good and we've been trying to keep these laws of his that were pretty moral people. But it's not just him who did this. You think about the Pharisee in the temple. Luke chapter 18, verse 10. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. And the Pharisee standing by himself prayed this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now again, it's easy for us to throw stones at him, but friends, aren't our hearts so similar to that? That we look at other people around us, we look at the culture around us, go, you know, I'm actually a pretty moral, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not like, and we start naming off the groups of people in the world that we are not like. This, this Pharisee believed he could get to God by his own righteousness. And friends, if we're not careful, we're tempted to think the same. I love it. Seth was telling me about the, young, or the college life group this week and their discussion in the college life group about last week's sermon about being unable to keep the law. And so as they were discussing it and thinking through that, they kind of came to the realization that so often we see ourselves as mostly moral. We see ourselves as kind of having mostly gotten to God on our own. Like we've done good stuff and we're kind of up here because we're pretty good people. And here's God. So we just need the cross to kind of give us that little bump to get us into heaven. We've gotten to God mostly on our own through our morality, our goodness, and we're great people. And now we see the cross to push us over. And they were realizing what a folly that was to think that. Because the reality, friends, is you and I, as Paul says here, we have an inherited guilt from before we're born, and we have an inherited sinfulness. We don't need the cross to bump us over because we're good people. We are far, far, far from God. And the only hope you and I have is the cross and what Christ did. And if we embrace the idea that we're mostly moral, we need Jesus to give us that final bump over, friends, we will never make it to him. Think about what happens next in Luke 18 as it carries on those next two verses. So you had the, the Pharisees standing there saying, I'm so good, I'm so moral, I fast, I do all these things. For us, we could be like, well, I'm a good person, I don't rob my neighbors, I'm a nice neighbor to my neighbors, and I work hard and work honestly, and I've joined the church, and I give my money to the church, and I support other missionaries, and I do all these good things. 
The tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He beat his chest saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus gives the summary of this. I tell you, the man, who, the man went down to his house justified. Who? The one who said, I'm a sinner, God. I have no good to bring to you. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He's the one who went home justified, meaning declared right by God, rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself, everyone who thinks he's a good moral person and can get to God on his own, that person will be humbled. They'll face the judgment of God. But the one who humbles himself and says, God, I have no good to bring, is simply you and your mercy and grace. That one will be exalted. That is the one who will find eternal life. Friends, the cross is not the final bridge to help us get that last little step to God. It's the only way for us even to begin to get to God because our hearts are so wicked and our hearts are so evil and our hearts are so prone to sin. Scripture is clear. You and I have zero goodness on our own. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 tells us, we've all become like one who is unclean. And think about this next phrase. All of our righteous deeds, all those good things that we tend to think make us moral and good and better than other people, all those righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That what to us looks like we're pretty good, God sees us, sees us being filthy and dirty. What us makes us feel like we're pretty moral, good, righteous people, God says, is filthy in my sight. We are all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. That's why Paul concludes in Ephesians 2. We saw it last week, but I want to remind us here. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Friends, we've got to get that phrase in our mind. This is not of us. If we are following Christ, it's not because we were moral people and God bumped us over that final edge there. This is nothing of us. It is the gift of God. Verse 9, he carries on. Not a result of works, not because we're good moral people, so that no one may boast. We are born guilty. We are born with an inherent guilt. We are born with an inherited sinful nature. We are born separated from God. So what then is the hope? And that's what Romans 5 is all about. We focused in on the kind of the negative, the hard part of this, of our inherited, inherited sinfulness. But don't miss the good news here in Romans chapter 5. When Paul wrote this, he wrote this with beautiful symmetry. He wrote this with beautiful precision. This, And I want you to see it. So for you OCD people, you're going to be really happy with what you're going to see. I want you to see a diagram, a color-coordinated diagram of our text. So Brad, I think you got it. There you go. So this is Romans, 18, Romans 5, 18 and 19 color-coordinated for OCD people, and to see the symmetry of this. Notice what Paul does here in this. Notice how he puts everything in perfect symmetry. There was one trespass. It led to condemnation for all. But there's one act of righteousness that leads to justification of life for all. He repeats it. So there's one disobedience that makes many sinners, and there's one obedience that makes many righteous. He's doing this beautiful picture for us in the language of helping us see the comparison between Adam and Christ. He's helping us see the beauty of what's going on here. There was a trespass, there was a disobedience, at least a condemnation, at least to sinners. There's righteousness and obedience, at least a justification in life, and at least us being declared righteous. He's comparing Adam and Christ because what Adam did in sinning has huge consequences for us. He's also showing us, though, that what Jesus did has even more consequence for us in this. I want you to see the hope that's buried in these, and the hope is in the green up there. If you want to focus in on those green words, this is the hope. Verse 18 here, notice what it says. So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. What is the act of righteousness? Jesus' entire life. His entire life was an act of righteousness. Jesus came, he was born of a virgin, he lived a life completely obedient to the will of God. He never once sinned in word, thought, or deed. He fulfilled the law that you and I could not fulfill. His entire life was an act of righteousness where he perfectly and perpetually obeyed the law. And Paul makes that clear in verse 19, by the very bottom, by the one man's obedience, that Christ obeyed everything. As it says in Philippians 2, even to the point of death, he obeyed the will of God. Now the question for us then is, how does those green words, righteousness and obedience, give you and I hope? How does Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' obedience, give us hope? 
Now think back to that technical word I gave you earlier, the word impute. Remember, to, be, to impute is when you, or something is credited to you that you did not do. If we were credited with Adam's guilt, even though we were not there, that means, friends, we can be credited with Christ's righteousness, even though we were not there. There's two imputations here. There's the imputation of Adam's guilt that led to condemnation for all men, that led to the many being made sinners. But there's the hope here that through what Christ did, we can have the imputation of righteousness so that his act of righteousness leads to it, imputes to us justification in life. His Christ obedience means that many of us can be made righteous. We can be imputed righteousness here, friends. Don't miss that. It leads to justification in life. Justification means God declares us not guilty. We are born being declared guilty already because of Adam's sin. And God says, because of Christ, I will declare you not guilty now. We are born on the path to death, like we saw back in Genesis, where everything leads to death. And God says, you deserve that, but I'm going to give you life, eternal life with me. How is that possible? Because when Christ died, we focus so much on our sin being put on Christ, the wrath of God being put on Christ, and that is what happened. But we must not miss at the cross that the righteousness of Christ was imputed, was given to us. So when we stand before God, he doesn't see me, he doesn't see you, he doesn't see our sin. He sees Jesus' righteousness covering us, has been imputed to us. Now notice that last phrase in verse 19. It's just is amazing, the wonder of it. By the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Righteous being a right standing before God. The many will be made right before God. And again, that phrase will be made is passive in the Greek. Just like many were made sinners, we can't help it. It was done to us. There's nothing we can do about it. The many will be made righteous. It means we can't do anything on our own to gain righteousness, but God has to completely give it to us. Now, the reality check for us in this, friends, is that doesn't happen for everyone. That's not an automatic process. Everyone, everyone is automatically imputed Adam's sin, but not everyone is imputed Christ righteousness. And there's people who want to teach, and you'll hear it, it's very popular today, even in churches, that, that God loves everyone, so everyone's going to be okay in the end. Everyone's just going to go to heaven in the end, that God loves everyone, and God's love means he's not going to turn anyone away, and as long as people are sincere, they're going to be okay. Friends, that may make us feel good, but that's not what God's word says. And maybe thinking, Greg, I saw the word all up here, and it's true. If you look back up here in the parallel, in verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men, one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. There's people who unfortunately taken this text and twisted it to teach that, look, God really is going to save everyone. See, it's all going to be okay. He said that all men are going to get this righteousness of Christ. That's not what Paul is saying here, friends. All here is qualified, explained by the rest of Scripture, the rest of the chapter. He's saying here, for all people who believe in Christ, they will receive this gift of righteousness. The surrounding context makes it clear. If you look ahead to Romans chapter 10, verse 12, in Romans 10, 12, I think we have that one up there for you. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. But wait, notice something here. He says, God is Lord of all. We know lots of people who, who do not call on him as Lord. What's he talking about here? All here means all types of people. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. This is whoever calls on him can be in part of this all here. That means it doesn't matter, friends, if you grew up in the Bible Belt or you grew up in the middle of a communist country. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, male or female. Christ's forgiveness is available for all types of people regardless of background on this. But the scripture is so clear to us that if we do not call on him, if we do not call upon the name of Christ, then we do not get the imputation of Christ's righteousness. If you go back early in Romans, Romans chapter 2, verse 12, notice the sobering aspect of this. For all who sinned without the law will also what? They're going to perish without the law. He's saying for the Gentiles, the non-Jew people, you may not have heard the law, but that doesn't matter. If you 
you're already a sinner. Remember, you have an inherited guilt and inherited sinfulness. You're going to perish. You may not have the law, but you're still going to die. You're still face a judgment of God. And he says to the Jews, and all who have sinned under the law, the Jews, because they've been given the law, they will still be judged by the law. So he doesn't give any hope of universalism here. You take that. And so what does he mean then if we go back to Romans chapter 5, verse 18? He's explaining to us, therefore, it's one trespass led to condemnation for all men, all men who are united to Adam, and that's everyone. So, one act of righteousness leads to justification life for all men who are united to Christ. And that's anyone who believes in Christ. What Paul is doing is using strong language to show us how far Christ's rescue from sin goes. That leads us to the important question in light of all this. This idea of inherited sin and inherited guilt is not just some nice philosophical thing for us to debate about in coffee shops here. This is an important question for us in light of this. And the question is, who are you united with? We're all united with either Adam or with Christ. Who are we united with? We're all born united to Adam. We're all born because we're his descendants, the descendants of Adam and Eve. We're all born united to Adam and Eve. Therefore, we're born with an inherited guilt from them, and we are born with an inherited sinfulness from them. We are born unable to keep God's law. We are born unable to please him. We are born lost under our sin, and we remain there until we become united to Christ. We become united to Christ not by joining the church, not by being moral, not by keeping the law. We become united to Christ through faith, believing that he is God, that he did live a perfect life, that he did die for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day according to the Scriptures. We receive him through faith, receiving him as Savior, receiving him as our Lord and as our Master. I love how Paul says in Romans 5, verse 17, just the very verse before our text this morning. He says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Friends, he offers us and he tells us we have to receive this gift. We have to receive the abundance of grace. We have to receive the free gift of righteousness. God offers it and he says, now you need to receive it. So the question is, how do we know if we've received it? How do we know if we're still under Adam or if we're under Christ now? And you simply know it because he's changed you, friends. He's transformed you. Your hope in having received this gift is not because you prayed a prayer, not because you raised your hand in an evangelistic event, not because you were baptized, not because you're a good person. If that's your hope, you need to seriously reevaluate. The way you know you've received this is you have faith in Christ, and that faith is changing you. What do I mean by it's changing? If you think back, if you were with us at Gateway four and a half years ago, we worked through the Gospel of John. We define faith back then as receiving a radical transformation from above. You know you've received this when you've received from God a radical transformation, that you love him now with a love you didn't have before. You experience what we sang about this morning. The more I seek you, the more I find you. The more I find you, the more I love you. That's not just words on the screen for you, but that is your experience of your life, that because you've been changed by God, because you're now united with Christ, there's a love in your heart. There's a desire to seek him that was not there before. And friends, furthermore, you find that God is beginning to free you from this enslavement to sin. You previously have. Look at Romans chapter 6, the very next chapter, Romans 6, 4 to 7. It says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, where that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in what? Newness of life. Yes. That if we are in Christ, if we are no longer united to Adam, we're now united to Christ. It shows because we have newness of life. Verse 5, he carries on. For we have been united with him, Christ, in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self, being enslaved to sin, was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7, for the, for the one who has died has been set free 
from sin. So how do we know if we're still united to Adam and with, inherit, with that inherited guilt, inherited sinfulness, and under the judgment of God? And how do we know if we're in Christ and set free from that? Because God is changing us. Not because of anything we're doing, but because of his grace. He's changing our affections and our desires, and we're seeing freedom from sin. So friends, the question for you this morning as we wrap up is, who are you united with? Are you still bound to our sin? Are we still bound to being Adam's descendants? Or are we now bound to Christ, united with Christ, having been declared righteous because we've been imputed something that did not belong to us? We've been imputed the righteousness of Christ. And it's evidenced not only by faith, not only with belief, but with a love for God and with a freedom that he's giving us from the power of sin over our lives. Who are you, friends, united with? So think about that, friends. We're going to close this morning with communion. This is a reminder to us of how we can be united with Christ. It's a time for us to have a very visual reminder of everything we've been talking about this morning. Because we take the bread, it reminds us that Christ's body was broken on the cross. So we take the juice, it reminds us that Christ's blood was shed, but the scripture is clear, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Friends, we are going to end this morning with communion to remember how we can go from being united with Adam to united with Christ. We're going to end with communion to remind us that we've been taken from death to life with this powerful visual reminder that Christ's righteousness has been given to us and all of our sin was put on Christ. That we go from being under, under the condemnation of death to now receiving justification and life. We go from being God's enemy to being God's friend. Friends, as such, this is only for followers of Christ. If you are not sure that you belong to God, if you're not sure you're united with Christ and that he really has changed your affections and your heart, that you believe in him and you're trusting him and you're submitting to him as your Lord and master, this is not for you. We're not going to embarrass you. We just want you to sit and not partake of this. Scripture warns us about taking communion in a way that without belief in an unworthy manner. So I want to encourage you to just use this time to pray and say, God, I'm not sure I really belong to you. I'm not sure I'm united to you. Would you please show me that and show me how to follow you? But friends, if you are a follower of Christ, that you know you've received him, you know you're united to him, you see him transforming you, you are welcome. Whether you're a member of Gateway or not, it doesn't matter. If you know, know you are in Christ, you're welcome to come remember and celebrate and thank him. But I have one thing I want us to think about before we do that this morning. Justin, as Justin begins playing here in just a minute, I want you to take some time in prayer and in worship before the Lord, but to ask yourself, when you think about yourself, are you evaluating yourself like the Pharisee? You evaluate yourself like the rich young man who comes to Jesus thinking, I'm actually a pretty good person. Or are you evaluating yourself going, I am a wretched sinner and I have no good on our, my own? Because, friends, the propensity is to think we're pretty good people and to give ourselves pats on the back. And so we take a few minutes, even as we begin to ponder things and reflect during communion, to make sure we're not thinking we're able to get to God in our own righteousness, but to understand our utter, utter, utter depravity, uh, the depths and wickedness of the sin in my heart and in your heart, to realize how quick we are to turn from the Lord and to see that we're not good people and that Jesus just bumps us over, but to see that we are wicked, wretched, depraved sinners who are bound to our sin apart from the mercy and grace of God. And if there are ways in our lives we've kind of been thinking that we're pretty good moral people and God must be really happy with us, communion is a chance to repent of that. Joy that we have no good on our own apart from him. So let's take a few minutes, friends, and just to ponder the grace of God, to ponder our sin, to pray to him and to thank him for his mercy and grace. And wherever you're ready in just a few minutes, you'll be able to take the elements that are in front of you.
Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. It was by the one man's disobedience that many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Father God, we ask that you would help us not lose the wonder of this. And to realize that we are born with an inherited guilt, inherited sinful corruption. Would you forgive us for thinking that we're pretty good people? Would you forgive us for thinking that we're pretty moral and you must be pleased with us because of our own actions? But when we think that way, we cheapen the cross and we trivialize grace. Lord, help us not lose sight of the fact that we bring nothing to you except for sin and rebellion. And God, you bring to us justification and life and righteousness and transformation. That's all your work. So Lord, as we have just eaten the bread and drank the juice, we're reminded that none of this would be possible if Christ did not joyfully and willingly go to the cross. Allow his body to be broken, his blood to be shed, so that we could be accepted and forgiven on the basis of nothing of our own doing, but all of your grace, all of your mercy. God, thank you seems such an adequate thing to say. Joys that all of my sin and all these precious friends' sin was put on Christ. He hung on that cruel Roman cross, that he felt your wrath that we should have felt. And he bore us so that we would never once in our life have to experience your wrath against our sin, our many sins. But to realize that when he hung there, he cried out, it is finished. His perfect obedience, his perfect life of righteousness was imputed, was given to us. So Father, when you look at us, you don't see me and my sin. You don't see these friends and their sin. You see Christ covering us. So we can march boldly into your throne of grace. Because you see Jesus when you see us. Oh God, forgive us for not marveling at that often enough. And help us today as we reflect on communion and reflect on these truths from Romans 5. To just marvel afresh at your grace and your mercy to such undeserving wretched sinners like us. Lord, we ask as we think of this, it would lead us to worship you. It would lead us to places of thanksgiving and praise. Not just when we're gathered on Sunday mornings, but all week long. But Lord, it would lead us to also make this known to others. Lord, all around us, maybe even our own homes, are people who are still only united to Adam, who have that inherited guilt, inherited sinfulness, and they are acting like sinners because they are sinners. Lord, help us not miss that you've put us around these people, whether in our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our schools. You see people who run to the restaurants or the grocery stores. You've put us here, Lord. Not only glorify you, but to make you known, to glorify you by pointing others to you. And so, Lord, as we reflect on the wonder that you've taken us from death to life, we reflect on the fact that through Christ's righteous obedience, we are now have righteousness and we have justification and we have life. May we not miss that you're called us to make that known to others. So this week, Lord, would you give us opportunities to point others to you, even as we marvel at your goodness to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. And would you stand as we sing our closing song this morning? And Mark and Gabby, we want you to come down and let us pray over you as well as we close out the song this morning.
cup we drink, the bread we eat, reminds us you are all we need, and makes us long for your wedding feast. cup we drink, the bread we eat, reminds us you are all we need, makes us long for your wedding feet, Jesus, we hunger we've sung these truths we've studied Lord that we realize this week every day this week that you are all that we need Lord from that place I pray that we would offer our lives as a sacrifice of praise and worship to you every day Lord just proclaiming that Lord our lives are not our own but Lord we belong to you so help us live that way this week Lord we can't produce that there's no righteousness in us that can make us want to live for you and surrender to you all this week you can produce that in us as your Holy Spirit dwells within us and changes us Lord, have your way in our lives this week, that we would find the joy of knowing you and the joy of being transformed by you, and that you will get all the glory. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Gateway family. Have a great Sunday afternoon.